Tonight's reading comes from John chapter 16, verses 5 to 15. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own, he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it's from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm going to pray uh, John 16, 5b, uh, to the end of the pat- well, to the end of verse 15 will be our text this morning. And uh, we're going to ask that God might help us to understand uh, what he has just spoken to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that we can hear the very voice of God as we read your word. Uh, Lord, would you help us to understand it? We pray that your spirit then would be at work, um, shining a light on the truth of the things that we have heard already. Lord, that it would be at work within us, guiding us in that truth, perhaps confronting us where we've thought wrongly about things, affirming the things already believed, and that your word to us would be an encouragement. I pray that I might speak it clearly now as we seek to understand it, and we pray that, Lord, by your word and spirit, you would be transforming us, that we might leave here changed because of it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, some of you will know that I've been with my family away for a week or so, and uh, we had a great holiday, which is terrific. Uh, so thank you for that time off. I appreciate that time. And for those that filled in in my absence, um, which is terrific, uh, we went and spent some time in, uh, in Bali, and, uh, and I brought something back, which was good. Uh, not knock-off shirts and didn't get a tattoo and didn't braid my head anything like that, it's, the, it's that low-grade gastro bug that you bring back. Um, haven't had that for a while, that, um, but you know, there it is, you get that lingering memory of the you know, holiday you've had, it just kind of stays with you for a week or so, and uh, you know where all the toilets are and all that kind of stuff, and you're not very confident, anyway, all of those things, and, uh, and uh, well, anyway, but that just occurred to me just this morning that maybe it's, maybe it's not that, maybe it's not the barley belly, maybe it's, maybe it's worse, um, you know, guys tend to do that, don't they? I know you kind of got the flu, but it's man flu. It's far worse than it is. I feel a little bit unsettled. Maybe it's something really terrible. And suppose, suppose it is a lot worse than that. Not, it's not just low-grade gastro. It's actually that I picked up some kind of, I don't know, unknown parasite. And uh, later this week, suppose I find myself in the doctor's office. And I've just had it explained to me that my imminent death, in fact, will be the result of a previously unheard of tropical disease. It's possible. You don't know. I don't know. I haven't been to the doctor yet to find out. And so then I'm going to have to let the phrase sink in, you've only got days to live. And then you hear the doctor say, but think on the 
bright side. You're like, well, what's the bright side? Think of the privilege, he says. It's a select few that have a disease named after them. So unique is the thing that's about to kill you. And, uh, you know, my mind's just tracking on as it does. And, uh, and then you think, but wait a minute, what? Think on the bright side. Sounds as if you think my suffering with Leon a cockle, um, as it's come to be known, is a good thing. I don't think it's a good thing at all. I might get a disease named after me, but I'm still dying here. Um, how is this really to my advantage? Sometimes, in the moment, it's hard to see how something might be a good thing. And I suspect even if you did have a disease named after you, you still don't think it's a very good thing, especially if it takes your life. But suppose that you're one of the 11 sitting in the room with Jesus as this farewell discourse is being discussed. You're listening to this man and bit by bit you've picked up on what he's saying and and you know he's saying goodbye. And and I hear what he's saying and it sounds like he thinks it's a good thing that he goes, but, but I don't get it. How is it to your advantage if you're a disciple of Jesus that he goes away? See, see, imagine that you are one of those disciples and you've just gone through the most amazing few years of your life. You've been there with Jesus as he's taught and healed and driven out demons. He's calmed storms and captivated crowds. He's debated church leaders and forgiven sinners. He's even raised people from the dead. You've left everything to follow this man and you've even followed him as he's ridden into Jerusalem and you've heard him just a week earlier being extolled as the king of Israel and you think, well, we hitched our wagon to the right thing. This one who has come in the name of the Lord and now he's brought you into a room and it's the night before his crucifixion and he's told you that. He's told you a lot more than that. In chapter 13, he's in fact washed your feet which has been this powerful picture of his sacrificial love and his care for you. He's then reminded you in chapter 14 that he's going to go away, but you won't be left as orphans and alone. He wants you to know that even though he's going away, that relationship is going to continue. So chapter 15, over the last few weeks, we've seen that just like the vine relates to the branches from which they grow, so remain. There'll be this continuity, so abide. But nonetheless, he's going. Your master will not be there any longer. And he tells you, Clearly that he's going. In verse 7 of the chapter we are this morning finding ourselves in, he says, I tell you the truth, it's for your good. It's for your advantage that I am going away. And you go, really? Could anything be better than having Jesus with you in your presence, physically there, having him remain, him abiding with you? Don't you want to reach out to him that night and say, please don't go out into this night. Please don't go to the garden and then on to the cruise. Please don't leave us. And hasn't he made it clear that for the disciples, those that are in the room, that his leaving them is going to mean that they are going to be hated by the world all the more? It'll get worse for you. Chapter 15, verse 18. And hasn't he just told them that they are to testify about him? Don't go quietly around about me. I want you to actually proclaim me the one that the world hates Chapter 15, verse 27. And then you read why Jesus wants his disciples to know all this in the first part of chapter 16. He says, all this I've told you so that you will not go astray. They'll put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. 
And there you are in the room that night, and you hear that. You can hear the collective swallow, can't you, amongst all of them in that room. Booted from the synagogue. That's terrible. How is that good? Killed. That's worse. This is not good that you go away. Why will all this happen? Chapter 16, verse 3. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. And then you realise, of course, as one of his disciples, you do know Jesus. And you know the Father. And unlike those who think they know God and believe themselves to be doing God's will by killing the disciples of Jesus, you are on the inside. And Jesus says to you on the inside, verse 4, I've told you this so that when, when the time comes, you'll remember that I've warned you. Not if, but when. And you realise it's beyond thoughtful that Jesus does that. Because times will get tough for his disciples and he knows it. And he knows that while he's been present with them, the spotlight has been on him and he's borne the full brunt of the opposition. So when the leaders have come attacking, it's Jesus that they have in their sights. But with him gone and with the disciples heeding his command for them to testify about him, they will be the target. See, when he's with them, they don't need to worry as much. But now Jesus tells them, yeah, don't worry. Remember what I've told you. Don't be surprised by the opposition when they boot you out of the synagogues and when the martyrs, martyrdom comes. Don't, don't worry when, when you've got the target on your back. Do not go astray. I've told you beforehand. But of course, there you are in that room filled with grief, verse 6 of chapter 16. Full of grief, and of course you would be. Not even able to articulate the obvious question. And it's at that point that Jesus points it out to you, which is where our passage begins this morning. None of you asks me, where are you going? Jesus actually points out to you at this point in time something of a rebuke. None of you has asked the question, where are you going? Of course, you hear Jesus make that statement. And at first you think, well, Jesus, that's not really fair. They have asked. Or at least they've implied that question twice already on this very night. Peter, back in chapter 13 and verse 36, asks Jesus directly, Lord, where are you going? Moments later, Thomas chimes in, in chapter 14, verse 5, and implies the question. He says, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And yet, when you go back and you look at those questions and you look at the text here in front of us, and the conversations that surround it, you realise that even though they ask the question, where are you going? What they've really asked is another question. Their preoccupation is with the question, why are you leaving us? It's the impact on them that's caught their attention. Not the journey and not the destination that Jesus is about to embark on. They are so concerned with their own problems their own feeling of abandonment, the sense of impending crisis and doom, that they don't really listen. Don Carson makes the point that they love themselves much and their master little. And because of that love for self, they see the implications for them and they are filled with grief. But they don't realise where it is that Jesus is going and what he has said. So they're not mourning the cross that Jesus is about to face or rejoicing with Jesus at the thought of him being reunited with the Father. Rather, verse 6, Jesus tells them, you are filled with grief 
because I have said these things. And I wonder if we don't need to listen to the rebuke that those followers of Jesus heard that night. The danger of self-absorption. Not hearing all of what Jesus is saying because we're preoccupied with the bits that we think impact us, with our lives and the things that are happening right in front of us. So the disciples that night, it's almost like you hear them say, Jesus, you lost me at the point that you said that we'll be put out of the synagogue and that they will kill us. We didn't listen to you in the first part of chapter 16, verse 5, when you said, but now I'm going to him who sent me. I mean, wash straight over us. Nice for you, but what does that have to do with us? So you're going to the one who sent us. But what about us? We're filled with grief here. And then you stop and you realise that the first part of verse 5 has everything to do with those disciples. That now Jesus is going to him who sent him. And not only does it have everything to do, everything to do with those disciples, but for us as well. Because Jesus is inviting them to look up from their lives and see the bigger picture. To see what it is that God is doing in his leaving and his death and his resurrection and his glorification. To see what God is doing reinterprets all of those events. But they're just consumed with their own grief. And understanding what it is that God is doing means that later on, the followers of Jesus are able to look up from their lives, whether their lives are prosperous or persecuted, and see the bigger picture and to hear Jesus. But here's the problem. For those first disciples of Jesus, something other than Jesus and all that he is and says has caught their attention. And they're filled with grief. They've got the wrong perspective. We we sang it this morning, just a moment ago. You deserve the greater glory. But actually, I was overcome by other things. You deserve the greater glory. And that's what Jesus is saying to them. You didn't even ask, where are you going? You haven't put it all together yet. And I wonder if we're not prone to do the same kind of thing. And that rebuke needs to come to us. Where something other than Jesus and all that he is and says has caught our attention. Is that happening to you, some aspect of your life? Now, of course, for the 11 in the upper room, their self-absorption means that they can't see how Jesus leaving them is good in any way. It's just confusing. It's devastating to hear that he's going. How is it going possibly to be for their advantage? That this one that they love and have devoted their life to is now leaving them. It's hard to get. Well, how is it to their advantage? The rest of the passage fills that in. Verses 7 onwards, Jesus fills in the answer. He says, I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counsellor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He says there's a causal link between what is good for you in me going. And it's all to do with the fact that when I go, I send Because my going is not an end, it's a new beginning. And in order to understand the advantage of what there is in Jesus going, it's caught up with him sending this counsellor. He's already spoken about it in chapter 14, but he goes into more detail here and he'll continue in more detail in future passages. Because if Jesus goes, the counsellor will come. Indeed, according to verse 7, it will actually be 
better, more advantageous for the disciples that the Spirit comes than having Jesus stay. Now, catch that. More advantageous for the disciples that the Spirit comes than having Jesus remain. But that doesn't sound right, does it? Imagine having Jesus in your midst. I think it's better to have him right there. And he says, no, no, it's better that I go. But why? And it's in these verses that follow that Jesus tells the disciples two things that the Spirit will do when he comes. He'll do a lot more, but he wants them to be aware of two things. Before you get to those two things, though, it is worth realising that during the earthly ministry of Jesus, the disciples that were with him were disadvantaged in two ways. John Stott makes this observation that while Jesus was with them on earth, his presence is localised. They can't have him with them anywhere, anytime. But that is not so with the Spirit. He will be accessible and available to everyone who believes, anywhere, anytime. The other disadvantage was that Jesus was external to them. He couldn't change them from the inside, but all of that will change with the sending of the Spirit. We saw this when we were back in chapter 14 and verse 17. Jesus says, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you, and I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. This idea that the Spirit actually internalises the presence of Jesus living in our hearts, that our bodies become the temple of the Lord in which he dwells, the third person of the Trinity with us, indwelling us. Prior to Jesus going, the disciples know none of that. And so already when you think about Jesus being absent and the Spirit present, you realise two distinct advantages. God accessible always and internally transforming. But in the passage here, you realise that there are two more things that Jesus wants us to be aware of. Two things that the Spirit will do when he comes. Now, what are those two things? The first you see in verses 8 to 11. And that is that the Spirit will prove the world to be wrong about sin, righteousness and judgment. The second thing, in verses 13 to 15, that he, the Spirit of truth, will guide the disciples in all truth. We're going to look at these two things in turn. Firstly, have a think about this, that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, we've got to catch what Jesus is saying here, that there's a work that the Spirit does when he is sent, and the work that he does, he does to the world. That's pretty obvious. Well, who's the world? Well, as you move through John's Gospel, it's actually really clear. You need to realise that it's the same world that Jesus has warned his disciples about, constantly. In fact, just in the immediate preceding chapter in verse 18, it's the world that hates him. And by association, the world that will hate them. A world that they no longer belong to, verse 19 of chapter 15. In fact, in John's Gospel, the world is the catch-all category for those who are not abiding or believing in Christ. There's those that are in Christ, and then there is the world. And it's this world that, the, that God has taken incredible interest in. You think of John 3.16. For God so loved the world, the cosmos, that he sent his one and only Son, so that they would not perish but have everlasting life. It's, it's the world. And, and the Spirit is going to come, when Jesus sends it, to do a work into the world. Those that aren't in Christ... 
And what's the Spirit going to do? Well, three things you discover. In verse 9, he's going to prove them to be in the wrong about sin. And he goes on to explain because people don't believe in him. Now, you understand this when you picture the world as it is. A world that refuses to accept that they're guilty before a holy God. That there's an issue or that there's a problem with sin that separates them and places them outside of God's love and his mercy. That, in fact, God's just verdict of guilt lies on the world and that they are deserving of death. Such a world doesn't seek after salvation. In fact, there's nothing that they would perceive that they need to be saved from. They don't even discern that they need Jesus. They don't believe in him. Well, Jesus says, I want you to know that the Spirit is at work saying to the world that thinks like that about sin, you're wrong. He puts a finger on sin and says, you are wrong about this. And the proof that you're wrong about sin is that you don't yet believe that Jesus is the only one who can deal with your sin. And so when you look at verse 9, you realise this idea of being wrong about sin because people don't believe in me. It pictures the world exactly like it is. Apathetic about Jesus. But, But don't think that the world is then lost to that. Because God is saying, I'm actually at work by my spirit in the world, convicting the world. In fact, he is at work in people so that they might recognise their need for Jesus and believe in him. That's one of the works of the spirit, says Jesus. But not only are they wrong about sin, verse 10 tells us that they're wrong about righteousness and the spirit will be at work proving them wrong about righteousness and goes on to explain because I'm going to the father. Now, the righteousness that Jesus is talking about, it's not his righteousness. They're wrong about their own righteousness, their self-righteousness. It's ironic in the way he talks about it in a way. Here is the picture of the world that's full of people who look at their actions and their conversations and their thoughts and say, man, how good am I? I'm a righteous dude. None of that's really a problem or sinful or separate or doing anything. In fact, I'm fine. I may not be perfect, but I'm not as bad as I could be and I'm not as bad as others. And if there is something like sin or unrighteousness, and I don't really think there needs to be, but that's what other people do to me. And Jesus is saying, there's a picture of the way that the world thinks itself to be okay and in the right, justified, but they're wrong. In fact, if you were to ask such a person, what if I told you that Jesus came into the world to deal with sin by dying in our place for our sins, the response from this person would be the same. What's the problem? I'm righteous. And yet, it is that very place where God's spirit works, convicting the world, proving to people that they are wrong about their righteousness and And I know it to be true of all of us in this room that we've experienced that convicting work of the Spirit. That at times says to us, you are wrong about your righteousness. Your standing before God is perilous. If you think you are okay and safe, the loving and convicting work of the Spirit is to say, you are wrong about that. When Jesus was with his disciples, 
he did exactly this same work. Convicting people about their righteousness. You think about it as he speaks to the rich young ruler or the woman at the well or many others as you see him there. He'll affirm aspects and say, but do you realise your great need of salvation? He puts his finger on the fact that they have failed the righteousness test. And Jesus says, with him gone, the spirit will continue and be engaged in that work, proving to the world that they are wrong about righteousness. Wrong about sin, wrong about righteousness, but also, verse 11, proving them that they are wrong about judgment. And he goes on to explain that this is because the prince of this world now stands condemned. What Jesus is talking about here is that people have made a wrong judgment, a wrong call. They've, they've got the wrong verdict. I think the best way to understand this is to see that Jesus is saying that people have actually made the wrong assessment of him and his victory and his sovereign rule. It might look like, with the events of the cross imminent, that the prince of this world is victorious. Satan is about to win a great victory. Well, you're wrong. The prince of this world now stands condemned. You are wrong. You've made a wrong judgment. In fact, the one who reigns and rules and is enthroned is, in fact, Jesus. See, Jesus knows that victory is imminent because of the cross. And the prince of this world, Satan, in fact, stands condemned. And it's critically important that people make the right judgment about Jesus. So the world will look at the cross and see it as a place where Jesus is losing, a defeat. But Jesus insists that the reality is it's the place where the world is condemned and the prince of this world is decisively defeated and he is victorious. He's proving them wrong about judgment. Because the prince of this world stands condemned and it's a wrong understanding of Jesus. And you think about it today when people respond to an evangelistic call or the investigation of Christianity and they say, look, I've explored Christianity and uh, I'm not really particularly interested. I've checked out Jesus and I've weighed it up and my judgment is this. I put Jesus in the dock and I'm happy to walk away. And, And what Jesus is saying is it's actually the Spirit's work to reverse that. That in fact, it's not God in the dock, but it's us in the dock. It's this world in the dock. And it says, you've made the wrong judgment about who is really in control and sovereign and reigning. And Jesus says to his disciples, it's good that I'm going because I'll send out the spirit and he will convict the world, prove the world about sin and about righteousness and about judgment. That they might see things the right way around. Because the world is wrong. It's making wrong choices, wrong judgments about who really is reigning and ruling. It's wrong about their righteousness and it's wrong about sin. And there's this evangelistic work of God's spirit in the world. And he's just told his disciples, go out and testify and bear witness. And yes, suffering will come. You'll be booted from the synagogue. Some of you will be martyred, but proclaim me. But don't think you're doing that on your own. In fact, unless the Spirit is sent, unless I go, then no one could possibly even come to faith. They'll continue in the error. 
But the Spirit will be sent and will do this evangelistic work of opening people's eyes to sin and righteousness that they might make true and accurate judgments. See, it's good, he says, to have the Spirit, to know that God is at work in his world and he's calling people to faith in his Son. And that's happened for all of us, hasn't it? If you've come to faith, that was a work of the Spirit. That at one point, and perhaps continuously, I would expect, throughout our lives, that continuing work of the Spirit. And so it prompts the question this morning, doesn't it? Just to say, what, what, what is the aspect of sin? Or a place where I think that I'm in the right. There's God's convicting work of His Spirit saying, you're wrong about that. Or where I've dethroned God, I've become too preoccupied with other things. That God's Spirit might actually say, you're in the wrong about judgment. You've, not in, you've enthroned the wrong thing. Well, God's Spirit at work in His disciples then and His followers forevermore, here is this incredible work of His Spirit, this work that works in His world, bringing conviction, proving the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. There's a second thing, though, isn't there, that the Spirit is going to do. You see it in verse 13 to 15, and and here's this unique work that the Spirit will do, guiding the disciples in all truth. In verse 12, he says, look, there's so much more I need to say to you, addressing the disciples, more than you can now bear. And of course, how much can they bear that night? There they are. It's, it's the eve of, of the crucifixion and it, it will get even harder to bear in hours to come. But Jesus comforts them by saying to them, when he, verse 13, the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you in all the truth. You, you might not know everything now, but you will be given everything that you need to know, all required truth about the way of salvation and the things that God intends for you to know. In fact, he's described there that he will come as a guide. He will guide you. It's good you think about those times where you've had a guide, and been on a guided tour somewhere. And you're always thankful for the, someone who's able to show you the way and knows what they're doing. But, but the objective of the guide is to take you to some kind of destination. And here you discover that the destination that the Spirit guides in for those disciples is truth. You think about what that meant two two millennia ago and what it means for us now. The importance of actually understanding the truth. Not just kind of like this is favourable and this is what I'd like to think, but, but that there's a real God who's really acted and he's really knowable and... How do you get that information? And Jesus is saying the Spirit's function to the 11 in the room will that he will guide them in all truth. In fact, three times in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus identifies the Spirit of truth. In chapter 14, verse 17, 15, 26, and 16, chapter thir- verse 13, the Spirit of truth that comes. Because Jesus knows that it is imperative that the disciples understand that what they receive when Jesus leaves, that will dwell in them, is this truth revealer, a truth reminder. Not 
a spirit among many, but definite article, the spirit of not a truth among many, but the truth. The spirit of all truth. They're not going to be missing out or lacking in any kind of way. And how will this spirit of truth work? Jesus reveals in verses 13 and 14, it comes by taking the truth from Christ and relaying what he hears to them. They, in turn, we know, take that truth and inscripturate it. It's why we can talk about having the apostolic word in the Holy Scriptures, the very breathed out word of God, spirit inspired. Speaking to the 11 disciples in the room that night, those specific individuals, promises are made to them that they will receive all that is required, all that need be given, all the truth that need to know, so that we who follow can know all that we need to hear from God. It's an incredible provision when you think about what it is that we've received that came to the disciples, that... uh, that all the bafflement of that night didn't confuse it all and mix it up, but that God actually made sure through the sending of his spirit that his word was preserved. And so if we were looking for the spirit to lead us into something new or something novel, or if the disciples were, then we've missed the point of what Jesus is saying. When the spirit of truth comes... He will guide you in all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That's why I said that the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. And so there's this passing on and there's this perfect transference as the Breath of God speaks out the word of God to the disciples of God who take the inspired word of God and inscripturate it, that we might receive it. See, we'd want to say that for certain God speaks today what he's already said in Christ, heard by the Spirit and conveyed to the apostles. The Spirit-led disciples were led into all truth. And I wonder, are you ever in the thought that maybe they missed something? Maybe there was more that they needed to write or they wrote things that we didn't really like. And what is the bit that the disciples missed? And Jesus' answer to that question is nothing. They were guided in all the truth. And what we discover is this work of the Spirit to those first disciples is that work of inspiration. It gives us an incredible confidence that as we come to the Word of God, that we have the very breathed out message that God wants us to know about true truth. And there's a continuing work of the Spirit in taking what was inspired and in illuminating it for us that we might resonate with the truth of it. It's why when we come to read the scriptures and preach week by week, that we're praying and asking that God by his word and spirit might join together and transform us, that it might meet at a point where we are convicted by the things that we believe that aren't true. 
that we're encouraged by the things that we believe that are true and that we're redirected from things that we might step in the right ways. Here are the disciples and they hear the news that it's good that the one that they're following is leaving. And part of the reason that it's good is because Satan, sin and death is all about to be reversed and dealt with through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But Jesus says, see beyond that too. And there's more good. There's the sending of my spirit and with the sending of my spirit is a work that is being worked out so that I am with you always, transforming you from the inside out. I'm at work in this world, telling this world that it is lost in sin and under judgment and it's got the wrong thing on the throne. And I'm a God preserving my word because I've poured out my spirit. And it's good that I go. But imagine there being that night, being in that room that night. Part of you must be thinking, no, don't go to the garden. Don't go to the beatings and don't go before Pilate and don't, don't, don't. And Jesus is saying it's for your good, it's to your advantage. Because if I go, I will die for the sin of the world, that they would not perish, but that they might have everlasting life. And my death is a new beginning because I will be resurrected to the right hand of the Father and I really am the one enthroned. Make the right judgment about that. And if I go, I send out my spirit and my spirit will continue to be at work and with you always to the very end of the age. And we end our time this morning by joining with those disciples. It's the same night of the Lord's Supper. We're there in the upper room and and Jesus has shared a meal. And he says, it's good that my body is broken. And it's good that my blood will be poured out for you. And, and I want you to take this meal that we've shared and keep eating it. Keep ingesting it. Let it be a living reminder of what it is that I've done until I come again. It's a meal that proclaims my sovereignty and my reign and rule over all things. It reminds you that I'm coming again. But it reminds you that in my first coming, I came as a sacrifice for your sin. Because you're not righteous. And it's good that I am. And this world is sinful. And it's good that I'm not. But that I was treated as one bearing the sin of the world. And that I took the unrighteousness of the world upon myself and died in your place. It's good. Because in it I brought about the reversal. It was demonstrated by my resurrection that I am the one who defeated your sin. Paid the death that you deserve. Satan, the prince of this world, stands condemned. But I'm reigning and I'm ruling and I'm king. Have you made the right judgment about that? 
So come. Look to the cross and see the body broken and the blood poured out. Because it's good if I go. And if I go, I'll pour out my spirit. And my spirit now, not distant but imminent, dwelling within you, convicting you and leading you and encouraging you, one who's come alongside you as your counsellor, your advocate, ministering in this world, reminding it that it's a world under judgment, wrong about righteousness and sin, but a world that is so loved by my heavenly Father. Will you pray for me, with me? Heavenly Father, you so loved and you continue to so love this world that you sent your one and only Son, sinless, righteous, the one who had reigned supremely from before eternity passed. You sent him so that whoever believes in him would not perish but would receive everlasting life, life in all of its abundance. And so, Heavenly Father, would you, by your Spirit now, search our hearts? Or would you show us where in our own lives still we are wrong about sin? And, Lord, where we're wrong about our self-righteousness. where we've forgotten our deep need, where we've been preoccupied by the things of our lives and we've stopped asking, where are you going? And maybe we forgot that you went to the cross and then returned to the Father's side, that you're reigning and that you're ruling. And so, Heavenly Father, would you do a convicting and an encouraging work by your Spirit in us now as we come and share this meal and as we're reminded of your incredible love for us, that your Son, sinless though he was, righteous though he was, bore our unrighteousness, that we might now be looked upon in the purity of your Son and that your Spirit now might take up a dwelling place within us. Your Holy Spirit abiding with us, that we might keep in step with him is our prayer. And so we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.